Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, isn't there just something delightfully intoxicating about the notion of a lost world, a lost continent, a lost city? Yeah, I mean, especially in this day and age where everything is mapped out, you have GPS, you can zoom to nearly any street and and take a gander. The idea that there is this continent out there undiscovered or perhaps once known and now just um, unknown to us again, just ripe and ready to be discovered is amazing. Yeah, I mean, we... uh when we were uh, talking about H.P. Lovecraft in a recent episode, uh, we talked about uh, his um, his novella at the Mountains mm-hmm. of Madness, which which is written in a time when when man is on the cusp of exploring the the last unknown, uh, Antarctica, and Lovecraft injects his fiction and mm-hmm. and places some uh, uh, the, the ancient remnants of a primordial alien uh, civilization there. And, and in a sense, he was investing our, our last hopes for something undiscovered on this world in that place. We love the idea, if there's not something undiscovered out there in the present, then maybe there was something in the past that we've lost. And failing that, hey, well, we'll just look to the future and dream something up there. Well, and I feel like he was tapping into something anyway in this idea that there are uh, cultures so very ancient and civilizations so very different from us that they did seem or might seem alien to us. And especially if you think about all the artifacts in that novella that they come across, um, the ancient writings or drawings and things that we discover today when we're trying to figure out how people worked in the past. So. It is this idea that this lost continent could give us another angle and another lens into humanity and what what ultimately helped to create us in where we are today. And certainly even just within known history, there are, there, there are plenty of places and times it's very difficult for us to, to, to wrap our heads around. Like it's it's been pointed out to me before that uh, the religion of the ancient Egyptians, for instance, uh, it never really took off beyond uh, ancient Egypt uh, because it is it is very difficult for an outsider to sort of wrap your head around uh, uh, these these concepts and, and what exactly they were going for. Which I think it make, makes it even that more romantic, these notions that these lands could have existed, these, these utopias where, you know, people were incredibly strong and, and the societies were wealthy and, and they were technologically advanced. This idea that this could have existed. And I'm even thinking about El Dorado, which oh, yes. is, you know, a perfect example of the sort of um, romantic version of society, but also this idea that all these treasures exist and you just need to go find them and plunder them. And El Dorado is the famed city of riches um, that 17th century European explorers were trying to find in South America with all sorts of fantastical stories of, you know, this Indian chief covered in gold and all sorts of gems and rubies just there for the taking. If you can find the city. <laughs> Indeed. One of the sources uh, we both read for this uh, particular episode, uh, an article by L. Sprague de Camp uh, titled uh, Lost Continents, which was published in uh, National History Magazine. You can find it online. Uh, he pointed out that, you know, as we've been saying, we, we love this idea of utopia. We love this idea that there's some lost land somewhere that, that, in, that captures perfection. Um, 
our world sucks, but surely we got it right at some point, or we will get it right uh, at some point in the future. Uh, he says that we, we used to situate these Edens and Golden Ages in the remote past or in some unexplored portion of the world, but now we're, we're forced to place them on other planets or in the distant <laughs> future. So so one day, one day maybe we'll get there. But failing that, of course, we... we we fill our, our our fantasies. We fill our dream worlds with these uh, various places. So uh, I think we've already mentioned a few, but uh, just some of the writers that come to my mind when we think about lost worlds. Uh, um, Lovecraft, of course. Uh, Clark Ashton Smith wrote whole cycles of short stories mm-hmm. set uh, on the lost uh, continent of Hyperborea, on the future continent of Zophic, and uh, on the last shard of sunken Atlantis known as Poseidonus. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote of uh, Numenor, which uh, I made the Tolkien uh, fanatics will probably correct me on that, and the pronunciation of uh, Tolkien's name. But I grew up saying Tolkien, so screw it. There you uh, go. But this world is another one that a fictional world fell into darkness, sank beneath the waves. Uh, Thomas More's Utopia, 1516 classic. I also uh, am remembering this chapter in Ken Jennings' book, Maphead, in which he talked about this law professor, Austin Tappenwright, who, who died in 1931, but he left behind something like 2,300 handwritten pages describing and mapping this fictional country in his mind called Islandia. And decades long fever dream for him, right? <laughs> you know, and this is beyond the sort of scope of his work that he did in his daily life. So this is what he did in the mornings and when he got home from work. And it detailed, uh, everything, the, the population, the culture, the languages. And again, here's this idea that we can't help but storytell when we think about distant lands, uh, real or imagined. I mean, this is something that really takes hold of us. I'm glad you mentioned Maphead because because that really cuts down to two of the key uh, features here in discussing lost continents and lost worlds. On one hand, the mapping of our world, uh, as, as we'll we'll roll out uh, as we continue in this conversation. Um, a, a lot of this stems from our attempt to understand. Uh, the shape of our world, the layout of our world, uh, where the where the continents are, where where various islands are, and then misinformation, theories, uh, hypothesis here and there, and and a lot of dreaming. We get into the the the, the theory of what may exist gets picked up by the de- into and transformed into the desire for something to exist. Yeah, that's a good point because I, I was thinking about this. You have maps that are physical maps and you have allegorical maps. Yes. In the same way, you have the same kind of stories, right? You have some that are allegorical stories and then you have some stories that may be rooted in historical fact. And I'm thinking about the city of Troy, which was written about by Homer in the fictional poems Iliad and Odyssey. And it turns out that the city of Troy uh, is was a, a city that is located in modern-day Turkey and it, the, the Trojan Wars may actually have happened. So you have all of this sort of tinging these ideas of of history and leg- legend, and no more so than the idea of Atlantis. Ah, yes. And, and I do want to say, a place like Troy, it, it, it instantly makes me think of any number of places that have an important role, both in real history, as well as in fiction, as well mm-hmm. as in religion and myth. And... Uh, some individuals want to really only take one of those or want to combine them all into a single 
thing, but I really feel a place like that, like Troy, it kind of exists in a like a quantum superposition. You know, <laughs> it is at once a real place and yeah. it is this fantasy place, and, and and these things are not necessarily connected. You can't necessarily overlay them uh, like see through panels in a book and expect to see a concise image. Yeah, it can be dual nature. Yeah, yeah, and indeed, at Atlantis, the big one definitely uh, falls into this category as well. Well, the thing about Atlantis, though, is that it's widely seen as an allegorical story. Yes. Right. We've- in the time that it was written, in the present, but we just can't help ourselves. Right. Uh, we, for all the reasons that we just ticked through. Um, so when we talk about the story of Atlantis, we're talking about the lost city, and you can't have this actual story about Atlantis unless you talk about this other city, this Athenian city that existed in the story at the same time. Um, this is huge empire that was organized along the lines that Plato had set forth in his Republic. And the state was ruled by a communistic military caste and everybody was brave and handsome and virtuous, kind of like Garrison Keillor's. Oh yeah, where Lake the, Wobegon, the women, are, women strong are strong and all the children are good looking. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Lake Wobegon as Atlantis. New theory. New theory. Garrison Keillor needs to write <laughs> that episode for Lake Wobegon. Um, but its rival city, of course, was Atlantis. And this is an island west of the Pillars of Hercules, larger than North Africa and Asia, Asia Minor combined, right? So just landmass wise, huge, right? Yeah. And this was, uh, just a, to rehash, written, uh, 355 BCE. And he's saying, uh, this was 9,000 years ago from right. 355. In 355, he was like, hey, this happened 9,000 years ago, which kind of is a red flag anyway, yeah. right? We'll, we'll discuss why. Um, this is long ago in a galaxy far, far away, basically. Yes, yeah. you're right. But basically, this continent had um, all sorts of great power, had tried to conquer the eastern Mediterranean, but had been defeated by the Athenians. And up to this point in the story... We we get all this background on Atlantis and how it was an advanced society. And but there are no flying planes, no, no. laser guns. Uh, there's they have a, a really fancy bronze like metal that shines like the sun. But that that's pretty much it. Plato doesn't yeah. lay out anything else sci fi. They it. have fancy architecture and art. Yeah, um, fancy pants. Okay, but at this point you have a great earthquake that devastates this Athenian city and Atlantis, and along with it. Uh, you know, you, you then have the flood swallowing it, uh, or you have Poseidon mandating that these floods uh, swallow these cities whole. Right, because it, it's also laid out in Plato's work that uh, that Poseidon puts his ten sons in charge of uh, Atlantis, and that's how Atlantis gets gets uh, kicked off with to begin with. Yeah, um, the charter, if you will. Josh Clark has an article about this, this an Atlantis article on how stuff works. And he says, Plato loses some credibility when he mentions that the city was also populated by blood descendants of the sea and earthquake god Poseidon. Yeah. I tend to agree with him. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to try and take Plato seriously. But it's it's like if you read J.R.R. Tolkien and said, this Middle Earth thing is just completely made up. I tried to find it on a map. I couldn't. I you know worked really hard. I came close a couple of times, but it just doesn't pan out. Of course, it doesn't pan out because Middle Earth does not really exist. It exists as a fiction. It exists, uh, you could argue, as an allegory for uh, for, for Europe during the Second World War, etc. Wait, et wait, wait a second. I saw that documentary, Lord of the Rings. Oh, yes. It exists. Well, 
New Zealand exists, and we'll actually discuss <laughs> New Zealand a little bit in part two of this uh, this episode. Yeah, the perfect setting, really, yeah. for Lord of the Rings, and um, the perfect setting as as a lost the idea of a lost continent, right? Has all the elements. All right, but there are two remaining points to hit here, and one is that the fact that nobody in Greece for nine thousand years had mentioned a giant battle between Athens and Atlantis. Yeah, except for Plato's tale and various commentaries by his successors, there's not another surviving word about Atlantis in the Greco-Roman, Egyptian, and Babylonian canon of literature. Which is a little suspect. Yeah. And again, everyone knew in Plato's day that this was fiction, this was allegory. Uh, uh, those who came after him knew it. But as uh, uh, L. Sprague de Camp points out, critical standards in the later Roman Empire degraded, and uh, some began to take the tale seriously. And that's kind of the beginning of what would later pick back up in terms of of reexamining Atlantis and thinking or wanting it to be true. Even though, and this is the second point, Plato was a philosopher, not a historian. Right. So he wrote on an allegorical level. Yeah, but he's Plato. He's a big name. So, you know, especially as the centuries roll by, there becomes this, uh, there's more of a a tendency to want to take what he says really seriously. And if he's talking about mysteries, all the better, right? Do you think Oprah will have that sort of power? And I always ask this, don't I, in some fashion. In 200 years? Yes. Yes, people will be rereading the the works of, of Oprah, looking for the lost works of Oprah. And her disciples, Dr. Phil, Dr. Yes. Oz, yes. Susie Orman. All right, uh, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about some of the people who are trying to get at the bottom of whether or not Atlantis could have ever existed. All right, we're back. Let's talk about some people who have looked at this fascinating idea of, I guess it's sort of like archaeology meets history meets geography meets could Atlantis have existed. Yeah. Yeah. It, this is where it gets uh, gets even more interesting because after about the 6th century, you didn't really hear much about Atlantis for a, a long time. Uh, until you reach the beginning of the European age of exploration during the 15th century. So we're out there, we're exploring the ocean, and we are, in fact, discovering new lands. But uh, And then, of course, we're mapping our ways, too. But just as our, our maps were populated by many uh, a non-existent creature, which we've discussed before, talking about the science of sea monsters, uh, so, too, do non-existent islands pop up throughout the Atlantic, especially the Atlantic. So in some ways you you have you're on the cusp of discovery, right? Mm-hmm. And you have these large swaths of undiscovered land and oceans. And so it would make sense that people would try to say, "I think that I have found where Atlantis went under." Yeah. And exactly. then you have a sect of of these people who you might consider scientific Atlantists. Yes, and, and this also picks up a lot uh, when we discover America, because, oh my goodness, here is a world, and it has people living on it who we've never discovered before. So that's even more fuel for the fire, right? And, and in fact, some uh, would end up uh, saying, hey, America is the Atlantis. And, well, it's not. Yes, L. Sprague de Camp divides Atlantis enthusiasts or Atlantists into three categories, mm-hmm. the scientific, the pseudoscientific, and the occultist. Mm-hmm. Um We'll start with the scientific because that's the, the, the reasonable place to start. And really, they it's kind of a, a progression, right, as you sort of drift off 
uh, a little little more a little more from uh, having a firm grasp in reality but it's uh, trying to be rooted in in reality it's trying to be rooted in data but then sort of drifting off i was thinking about this that that cognitive bias Yes. That we sometimes experience when we're trying to create that picture that we want to see. Yeah. You sort of like the scientists, the scientific Atlantis are saying, could it be true? Let me see. Here's my theory about how it could be. And then the, the pseudoscientific, the, uh, the, the desire for it to be true takes over. And then with the occultist, just any other nonsense you might have lying about the house gets thrown into it. Your they're fantasies. They're the most fun, though. They're the most fun, yes. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, for scientific uh, Atlantis... Uh, they are again. They're looking for an ancient culture that could have possibly inspired Plato, and and they're not necessarily even getting into the whole uh, worry over uh, an actual Atlantic island or some sort of large landmass sinking into the ocean. So in uh, 1679, uh, Olaf Rudbeck. Uh, supposedly found Atlantis in Sweden, and then uh, subsequently other uh, uh, individuals found Atlantis in, uh, uh, in uh, Tunisia, in Nigeria, in South Africa, uh, and just about everywhere else, right? Um, the best theories that have been put forth uh, regarding the location of Atlanta tend to put it in uh, Minoan Crete or in Tartessus, uh, which is a harbor city uh, in the surrounding area on the uh, southern coast of the Iberian Peninsula that was uh, abandoned to floodwaters, most likely before the Common Era. Meanwhile, the eastern uh, Mediterranean Minoan Empire really did suffer overwhelming disaster around 1500 BCE, and this was a Bronze Age power that flourished uh, from uh, the 27th century BCE to around the 15th century BCE. So that's an example of scientific Atlantis. Now you have pseudo-scientific Atlantis, and a good example is Augustus Le Pigeon. I'm, I'm glad you tackled that one. You have more of the French tongue. Anyone who is proficient in French may take issue with that. But okay. I tried. Let it be known I tried. Um, he spent a lot of years in the Mayan ruins of the Yucatan. He became quite an expert. He claimed to understand the Mayan alphabet and... He considered Egyptian hieroglyphics similar to the Mayan, and he claimed to be able to to sort of sort all of this by using a modification of something called Brasil de Bobolche's modification of a Delanda's alphabet. So all of those words just falling out of my mouth, Mm -hmm. I think already gives you an idea that this guy was completely obsessed. No doubt he was a scholar. But he was uh, carving things together in such a way that he was really, really was world building and, and doing it with language. Yeah, and I think world building is key here. Yeah, because he's taking what he knows about Mayan culture and then he's connecting it. He's forming connective tissue to not only uh, the, 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 the real ancient Egypt, but to this imagined Atlantis and just stitching together uh, a, a world anew. Can you imagine him living today and tackling like the moon landing hoax? Oh, yeah. He would have a huge following online, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things that continually amazes me, looking around uh, at a variety of topics, not just this one online, is just how much material there is out there supporting just bad theories, bad ideas about, say, uh how recently the dinosaurs uh, uh, went extinct, or where Atlantis is or was, or I mean, just it's 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 a little depressing at times. Well, I think it speaks to this idea that humans have to chew on something. Yeah, and sometimes, and a, a lot of the problem here is that 
our experience is so subjective that it's hard to say, well, this is the thing. Although it's actually not that hard. In fact, you can take scientific data and help yourself <laughs> guide yourself into the, the right area of exploration. Nonetheless, we are world builders. We are storytellers and we got to chew on something. I found an hour long, uh, amateur documentary on YouTube the other day where a man was arguing uh, for the recent existence of dinosaurs based on evidence in the Bible. But here's the thing. He wasn't trying. He didn't seem to have any other point, but there are dinosaurs in the Bible. He wasn't trying to push any kind of like new, uh, you know, young mm-hmm. earth kind of a model. He wasn't yeah. trying to disprove evolution. He was just saying, hey, there are dinosaurs in the Bible. And here's an hour of me talking about it. Because for him, that is the thing that obviously <laughs> is problematic. Mm-hmm. And if he could just figure out how dinosaurs fit into this, then all of it would make sense. Again, you have the cognitive bias at play that when you are faced with something that really refutes the data in front of you, you will double down and find a way to make it fit. Speaking of uh, pseudoscientific uh, Atlantis, uh, another individual worth mentioning is Paul Schliemann. And uh, Paul Schliemann was actually the grandson of Heinrich Schliemann, who actually dug up Troy. Uh, we mentioned earlier about the finding of Troy and realizing mm-hmm. that Troy is a real place in addition to, uh, you know, whatever else it might be in uh, in, in the, the, the popular mindset of man. But, uh, yeah, 1912, Paul uh, Schliemann um, gave the New York American uh, magazine a sensational tale about how his grandfather had left secret papers instructing him uh, not uh, to instruct him to break open an owl-headed vase and supposedly there were uh, Atlantis secrets uh, inside but nothing oh. ever came of that no vase was ever presented no documents so um, but it uh, but it added just a little more fuel to the fire. All right. Um, the last category here would be, as you mentioned before, the occult Atlantis. And this, these really are the, the people that are going to bring the life to the party here. Yeah, with occultist uh, Atlantis. And occultist doesn't just mean... I know it brings to my mind uh, uh, images of uh, individuals in dark cloaks meeting in secret rooms right. and discussing Atlantis. But really, um, we're talking about here is just any additional crazy idea, conspiracy theories, fictional imaginings, um, you know, the, the same kind of energy that would go into uh, rectifying the Old Testament with uh, with, with modern uh, um, uh, paleontology. That's the kind of energy you're getting here. So you're getting everything from, uh, you know, ancient uh, airplanes sailing mm-hmm. through the skies of Atlantis to, you know, magical powers, uh, uh, bisexual Lemurians, astral bodies. You name it, it's going to wind up in this version of Atlantis and, and Atlantis thought. It, yeah, it gets super cosmic yeah. on this level. You could trace some of this uh, new life breathed into the legend to someone named Ignatius Donnelly who penned Atlantis, the antediluvian world. In Which this means before the flood. Before the flood. Mm-hmm. The flood. Yeah. Because there have been the, many floods. In the big but, flood, the, yeah. bi- the big biblical flood. Yeah, that one. Uh, so we're talking about 1882, and Donnelly argued that small islands have disappeared in eruptions, so why not a continent? So this is his place of logic that he's beginning at. Right, which doesn't really hold out because, it's, of course, it's one thing for an island to sink, but for a large, massive uh, piece of uh, an actual continent to sink, it just doesn't hold up with our, our modern understanding of geology. Now, he also cited many alleged resemblances between the appearance and cultures of the people of America, Europe, and the Near East, and insisted that, therefore, the civilizations of all must have come from Atlantis. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, they're all humans. 
So, well, he he starts with a, a good observation. Uh-huh. There's something universal here. There there are, there are aspects of various cultures that seem to mm-hmm. be connected. There's some sort of connective tissue here. What could the reason be? Answer: Atlantis. Atlantis. Instead of saying like maybe genetics, but of course there's not a great uh, understanding of genetics at that time anyway. So you got to give him a little room. But the the problem here is that he completely, I mean, besides coming from this place of logic, he completely ignores Plato's myth and he replaces it with a variation on the biblical myth of the flood that wiped out everything except for Noah, his family, and his menagerie of animals. He wrote that Atlantis was sunk in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean during the flood. But before all of this, it had given rise to the Egyptian and Mayan civilizations and to blue-eyed, red-haired Aryans of Ireland. Ah. Ah, see where you're going there, Donnelly. <laughs> so he pulls in a lot of ideas in this theory. He's bringing in the biblical theory. He's bringing in some Irish myth. He's bringing in um, uh, discoveries about uh, ancient Egyptian uh, beliefs and uh, and about Mayan beliefs and just sort of, again, world-building it all into this uh, version of reality that doesn't actually match up with the uh, with what we know to be true. Yeah, and think about this time period, too. You have a ton of excavations going on in the late 1800s, and you also have the occultists exploring these more cosmic ideas of how we came to be and these more fantastical ideas. So it was sort of like the, the perfect story to usher in an expression of all of this. The zeitgeist of the moment, I suppose. <laughs> All right, so let's let's back up just a little bit then. Uh, so we've we've ventured f- headfirst all the way th- from scientific to pseudoscientific and into the occult and mm-hmm. considering Atlantis. And at that point, we're 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 just lost. We we, we reach it just turns into pop culture and fiction and uh, and uh, indeed uh, an old I think like 1982 Atari game called Atlantis that I remember seeing the trailers for mm-hmm. in which uh, alien gorgons battle the Atlanteans and there was an amazing TV commercial for it. Um, but uh, but but to back up, let's let's go back to this uh, this period of time in which we are actually exploring the world. We are exploring the oceans. And we are, in fact, looking for and expecting to find undiscovered continents. Particularly, we're looking in uh, the Southern Ocean, all right, in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, a lot of the early explorations of this area were actually an attempt to find uh, what was called Terra Australis Incognita. Not really to explore the ocean itself mm-hmm. as much. I mean, we, we did that, but it was simply... Uh, uh, because there were, there had to be this great undiscovered continent out there. And there are a couple of reasons for this. Um, for instance, uh, or there's a religious one, and that is that uh, if uh, there's so much land in the northern hemisphere mm-hmm. that surely a divine creator would not have created an asymmetrical earth. I mean, forgetting the fact that he apparently created asymmetrical humans, because we're not perfectly symmetrical, but surely he would have made the earth symmetrical. So I get it. From a geographical standpoint and from a sort of God worldview standpoint, they're sitting there and they're looking at this landmass and they've they've mapped what they know. Mm-hmm. And they think that symmetrically there should be something on the other side. Yeah, I mean, it's like when we look into the night sky and based on our model of what we know, it's not unbelievable to think, well, there must there might be other planets out there that have life on them. We, we, we just have to sort of fill in the blanks based on the existing model. So. And this all boils down to Plato. And his platonic ideal yet again. Oh, wow. Plato emerges once more to uh, populate our world with fictional continents. Yeah. Um, 
Now, scientifically, you can, there's also the, it's not all just completely based in religion and, and philosophy, uh, but scientifically, it was also thought that if you had all this land in the north, then there must be land in the south, because otherwise the, the planet's uh, balance would be disrupted, and, uh, and it would uh, spin off out into the void of space. And uh, so, much of the, uh, so much of the earth was unknown, it was simply assumed that there was more land in the south. Um, and, and again, this doesn't completely line up with the way, obviously, this doesn't line up with the way um, uh, uh, planetary science works because we haven't spun off into the void. And there is, in fact, less uh, continental mass in the southern hemisphere. But the idea that they even understood that there was a kind of mass at play is really mm-hmm. interesting and in, in trying to extrapolate that in a, in a larger view of things. So, in other words, maybe you have a weight um you know, that on one side it's got a bunch of rocks and nothing on the other side. But to get that concept and to, to try to apply it to geography is really interesting. Yeah. So we ended up setting out into the uh, in, into into the Southern Ocean. We eventually discover Antarctica, and we do, we explore all the waters in between. And there is a lot of nothing out there. Um, there's a really great episode of uh, Ideas with Paul Kennedy titled uh, "The Godforsaken Sea" that really gets into into depth about uh, uh, about some of our early explorations of uh, of, of the Southern Ocean, but also uh, people who sailed there, people who've tried to set records uh, mm-hmm. sailing around uh, uh, the globe down there and one of the uh, the points that was made in, in that uh, episode that that keeps resonating with me pointed out that uh you're so far away from civilization down there in the southern ocean uh in fact you're further from human habitation than an astronaut on the international space station oh. so think about that the next time uh you stare at a globe and get this false idea of of, of how uh, how well we know everything and how civilized our planet is. Or if you just feel isolated. Yes. You know. All right, so there you go. That is part one of our two-part series on the idea of the lost continent. This one was very Atlantis-heavy. The next one will be less so. Uh, but we'll get into some... Uh, some equally wonderful content, and we will set out for the lost continent of Lemuria. <laughs> Lemurs. Hey, do you guys have any thoughts so far? Let us know. You can find us at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Yes, that's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, all the videos, all the blog posts, and, you know, there's an old-fashioned way to get in touch with us as well. Creek, creek, creek. <laughs> Send an email to BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 